Hello, and welcome to New Books in History. This is Shirley Banks, a guest host on the channel. Today we'll be talking with Trigvi Throntveit of University of Minnesota about his new book, William James and the Quest for an Ethical Republic. William James is one of the United States' most far-reaching thinkers. His impact on philosophy, psychology, and religious studies is well-documented. But few scholars have considered James's impact on the area of ethics and political thought. Trigri Throntveit's new book, William James and the Quest for an Ethical Republic, is a persuasive and innovative look at the Jamesian social and political legacy, especially as played out in the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Dr. Throntveit leverages the archives of the James family, including novelist Henry James, Jr., and William and Henry's father, Swedenborgian theologian Henry James, Sr., to show how Henry Sr.'s ambitious but unfocused educational program affected William James's vocation and intellectual commitments. In committing to a pragmatic ethic that could accommodate varieties of religious experience, James envisioned how a democratic society should regard the individual. Throntbite reads James in light of James's personal development in relationship to other public intellectuals with whom he corresponded and was personally acquainted. The author keeps a steady eye on how William James developed as a person and as a scholar through his relationships. Throntbite's innovation lies in tracing the ways in which others applied and sometimes modified Jamesian ideas during the progressive era of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Social critic W.E.B. Du Bois, philosopher of public life John Dewey, urban theorist and reformer Jane Addams, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, Theodore Roosevelt, and others directly responded to William James's pragmatism via their policymaking authority. In turn, these public intellectuals had the attention of Woodrow Wilson. The ideals of democracy the ethical republic, were set in motion for the trials ahead in the Great War and beyond. William James and the Quest for an Ethical Republic contributes to William James' studies, American history, history of ideas, and philosophy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in History. I'm Shirley Banks, guest host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Trigvi Throntveit about his new book, William James and the Quest for an Ethical Republic. Trigvi Throntveit, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, Trig, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and your, your background. Sure. I uh, grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, and am now returned to the Twin Cities area. Um, I uh, was the, well, I guess I suppose I still am, uh, the son of a, a theologian uh, at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, um, and uh, a very well-read former English teacher mother. Um, And I just kind of always uh, loved books, Uh, so I'm very excited to be on a a program like this. I um, went out east for college and fell in love with, uh, I guess, uh, the world of ideas and uh, decided to take a Ph.D. First in intellectual history uh, was my focus, and uh, recently I've kind of branched out into... um, American cultural, social, political history, and the history of U.S. foreign relations. Uh, and uh, currently, I'm actually um, in a different line of work, but maintaining my uh, career, I suppose, as an independent scholar. Oh, great. Um, you know, I, it really struck me that um, it was an interesting project. I've n- I don't think I've seen any William James material coming from the discipline of history. So that, that was an interesting choice. Um, can you tell us how you came to write about this project and, and what what drew you to the topic? Yes. Well, one of the things that drew me to the topic, actually, is that William James is written about by so many people in so many different disciplines uh, that, you know, there was obviously not only a resonance for me, but with many other people. On the other hand, a lot of those literatures are sort of disjointed. You know, there are people who write about James from a religious studies perspective, and there are philosophies who write about pragmatism and the sort of larger pragmatist tradition. Uh, There are historians who are interested in um, the development of James's ideas or his role in the development of certain um, 
broader uh, cultures of thinking and practice. Um, and I was kind of interested in all of those. Uh, and I was most I was most struck, I guess, by how uh, how little attention had been given to what I saw as the fundamentally uh, moral quest or ethical concern underlying all of James's works. Uh, and so I set out to to explore that and see if maybe that was a way to tie these concerns together. Okay. So who were some of the people that, uh, some of the faculty at Harvard who supported your academic interest from, like, from within history? Sure. Uh, I mean, I got great support from everybody uh, in, the, in the history department at Harvard, really, who I encountered. It was a great place to, to study and then to teach for several years afterward. Um, but my uh, advisor uh, was uh, Jim Kloppenberg, who's an intellectual historian uh, and uh, has written many, many, many articles uh, on pragmatism uh, and was from the get-go extraordinarily supportive. It's, uh, he is really the reason I ended up at Harvard. He had, he had read my undergraduate thesis in actually a different department uh, at Harvard and um, was kind enough to overlook the fact that I had never consulted him about the topic during uh, my undergraduate uh, thesis writing days uh, and not hold that against me. And um, we struck up a friendship after uh, he had read my thesis and that led to um, me heading back to Cambridge, Massachusetts. All right. Yeah, I think that's that seems to be one of the real strengths of Harvard is the, the interdisciplinary grazing that is possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we've got several people at the, uh, you know, at the university in various departments who, who are interested um, in James uh, and in uh, pragmatism more generally. And my home was in the history department, but, uh, you know, I, I benefited from conversations with people at the Divinity School, uh, in, uh, in the School of Government. So, you know, it, all sorts of postdocs and, and people visiting scholars. Um, it's a very vibrant intellectual environment with a lot of really good intellectual churn. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked very closely with um, with Jim, uh, although this was not really my dissertation topic. This is kind of a, a, a book that spun out of a, a larger project, but, um, but even with this project, uh, both within the Harvard community and uh, in the in the historical and philosophical community generally, I've had lots of good interlocutors. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, well, maybe with that we can uh, turn to the content of the book. Um, like like yourself, William James definitely had a, a very rich uh, relationships and dialectical environment for his development as a scholar and as, as a public intellectual um, now, before we start talking about the first chapter, um, we should probably note that William James's father and brother have the same name, so that can get a little confusing. So the novelist Henry James is William James's brother, and they, William and Henry Jr. have Henry Sr. as their father. And Henry Sr. was a friend of Emerson and, and several other transcendentalists and, and intellectuals in the Boston scene. Um, Henry Sr. was something of a theologian and mystic. Um, and you really do a wonderful job of connecting William James's biography and family history with his work in ethics and psychology and philosophy. Can you tell us about how you make that connection with the family dynamics and especially the education of William and Henry? Yes. Um, I mean, I have to admit, as I... Uh may have mentioned earlier, I, I drew a little bit on my own experience as the son of a, in this case, as the son of a theologian. Um, however, in this case, a non-mystic. <laughs> my dad is not a mystic. I, that's not the word I would use to describe him. Uh, but I drew a lot on that experience in thinking about how Henry Sr. shaped William's thinking. Um, first, however, I should say that I, I do not think Henry Jr. or the other really true genius of the family, their sister Alice, directly shaped William's thinking, Mm -hmm. except in constituting a community of really extraordinary interlocutors and arguers that forced James to unstiffen his thinking, as he would say later, in constant reaction to the views of of others. Uh, And, and, you know, I wish perhaps I I had been able to 
test that assumption of mine a little bit more in, in the course of the book. Um, in any case, I, I do think Henry Sr. Williams' father is a different story. It's tempting to interpret his influence on his son as entirely negative, not in a pejorative sense, but in the sense that William reacted against his father's ideas. Um, in this telling, I, you know, the sort of unsettled uh, zigzag education that resulted from his father's thinking, which was which was pretty confusing in emphasizing both the universe's ultimate rationality and the barrier of free will to our understanding of it, while simultaneously stressing God's desire for us to act entirely spontaneously to sort of help achieve the universe's consummation. Um, these ideas, I think a lot of people have argued, led William to reject speculation for science, uh, to reject predestination for freedom, and so forth. Um, a little less common, but not at all unheard of, is, is for people to look for aspects of James's mature thinking, his mature metaphysics, that point toward an ultimate um, trans-empirical or, or supra-empirical unity of existence. You know, for instance, we're all sort of uh, eddies in a universal sea of consciousness or, or something along those lines. Um, I think what James learned from his father is, is a little bit simpler, and it's that brilliant people can be wrong, mm. and that being wrong does not have to mean being totally wrong. Uh, Henry Sr. Was, was not conventional, and he, he certainly wasn't very pious, but he was deeply religious in his way. And, you know, William, I think, wondered how did these beliefs and commitments that seem to explain so little to him have such a hold on his brilliant dad and his dad's, you know, brilliant friends. And it struck me that in my own conversations with, with my dad, uh, we often disagree on specific answers to theological questions, but we agree on the importance of the questions themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, we agree a lot more than James and his dad did, but still I thought maybe I should look for the common concerns that Henry Sr. and William shared, even in disagreement. And, mm. and, and I what, think that that's oh, something that, that really comes through in James's um, sort of intellectual personality, his warmth towards even his his most vigorous opponents is really, is always apparent. And I, and I think he he had perhaps from such a rich family um, experience, maybe he was maybe that could be a place where he learned to preserve the sense of warmth and, and relationship and real, you know, intellectual and relational engagement with people. Yeah, I think that comes through in in his published writing, certainly, and even in his correspondence, although he could be pretty um, uh, frank in his uh, opinions about those that he thought were sort of willfully uh, ignoring what he was really trying to say about the nature of knowledge and truth and and um, turning it into a sort of, uh, we can just believe whatever we want to believe type um, of, of therapy. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I mean, he, he really was uh, you know, some might say almost to a fault, kind of open to the ideas of quacks and goofballs and um, people that others may not take very seriously. And, and you know, history vindicated him in a lot of those circumstances. He was a mentor to a lot of people who were outsiders in their day. Yeah. Um, you know, you think of the famous examples like Horace Callan um, or W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, so I, I think he really did try, uh, at least, to practice what he preached in that way because he was preaching it in some ways due to his personal experience. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of that picture of him uh, jokingly arguing with Josiah Royce. Oh, yeah. You know, that one where they're sitting on a stone fence and mm -hmm. <laughs> debating philosophy. Yeah, and, out, in the, out in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and they were, they were good buddies. Um, and, uh, you know, he had ultimate he had amazing respect for Royce. He, um, uh, Royce wrote a, a book in 1885 that James spent um, a, quite a bit of time. Well, actually, Royce wrote several books that James spent quite a bit of time just kind of thinking, well, how do I, this is brilliant, but I just think it's not right. How do I, mm -hmm. <laughs> how do I wrestle with this? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I guess, I think that the thing I take away from James's interactions with his father intellectually is that 
he was able to realize that there was something really powerful about Henry Sr.'s thinking, and that was this idea that the world is necessarily in the making or in process, and that even for his dad, the question of free will was central to understanding that process. Um, and in, in Henry Sr.'s case, it was abjuring free will that was the necessary step toward realizing one's solidarity with the rest of humanity and God. Um, and in Williams, it was not certainly not to to abjure free will, but, but even for Henry Sr., that step was, in a sense, the kind of ultimate act of free will, sort of in the same way that, um, you know, God, through Christ, freely subjected himself to the world. Right. Um, and, you know, for William on free will, you'll have to read the book. Um, right. <laughs> but it suffices to say that he viewed the world as in the making, and then human beings were agents in that process. Yeah. So that this kind of leads us into chapter two, um, where the way I read it, and and correct me if I'm misreading your uh, your point in chapter two, was that religion sort of emerges as a almost a middle term between philosophy and ethics. You know, religion, and and we should say that for James, religion meant um, what the individual experiences in within themselves. Um, he, he recognizes institutions and theologies and so on, but that's, and he respects those, but that's not what he means by religion. Um, so is that a fair thing to say, that, uh, that religion is sort of a middle term between philosophy and ethics, sort of the way he gets to the, away from the abstractions of philosophy and bridges into the concrete mandates of ethics. Yeah, I, I like that. I, you know, I hadn't thought of it in that way, but I think that um, I think that does help get at what James is is trying to do, which is to look at religion as um, uh, you know a, a sphere of experience in which um, our consistent tendency and actually necessity for kind of acting on faith in order to confront a confusing world that we never completely know it, mm-hmm. it is is uh, is very apparent and is dramatized um, but not dramatized to the extent that it it becomes detached from reality in his view right. um, you know here's a place where actually I think James and um, uh, James and Dewey really overlap and some ways, um, because you know James James really believes, as did Dewey, that um, society should make room for those who hold a variety of individual beliefs and religious experiences. Um, basically, James argues that all knowledge is this sort of record of our attempts to overcome problems or impediments to our interests and goals, and that truth is is the quality we ascribe to those efforts that work for us. Um, but they work in, in kind of the long run and without preventing us from believing that other working hy- believing in other working hypotheses that yield more important benefits. And, and because those other working hypotheses include the experientially validated beliefs of other people, uh, our, our freedom of inquiry and our potential to flourish personally as well as discover truths of social value, really depends on our role in maintaining a wild field of inquiry, a wide field of inquiry for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, James himself is, I think he's being demure in, and he understates his own faith. Um, but he's he is ambivalent about his, his own uh, beliefs and and yet he feels so strongly that there must be room for faith. Yeah, I mean, James, it, as I said, you know, James goes further than Dewey, it seems to me, in equating religious faith with the faith that is involved in all thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that faith is really, you know, the idea in, in a world... Uh, that can be better than it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's basically this, 
religion for James is that idea, you know, at least in its in those variants that he considers genuinely religious rather than rationalist. It's versions of this really socially valuable notion that the current state of the universe as we experience it is not the only possible state. So religion becomes a series of tests, of propositions that are potentially useful to society. The world can be a better place. I can be a part of improving it. Um, that depends on my actions. Actions that are useful in that regard are going to have consequences of a certain character. If those consequences are not, in fact, um, living up to the, the predictions that my religious beliefs imply, um, I have to revise those. Uh, but that doesn't mean giving up on religion. Right. And that that's where the, the pragmatism comes in. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think James, you know, James, I, I think it's pretty clear James did not believe in God in, in, in any sense that, that is, is prevalent in, in common discourse. Um, what he believed in was a world in which um, we are, we are encouraged by experience and really, in, in a way, bound uh, by our station in, in this fluctuating world of experience, or not our station, our, our, our own kind of fluctuating existence, to believe that we have some, um, that there's some purpose to our actions uh, and that we are both agents and extremely uh, kind of ultimately radically responsible for our actions at the same time that we we can't predict the way that um, things will turn out. Uh, right. And I think for James that he thought that for most religious people it was that kind of a world and that kind of a life um, that religion helped them explain and uh, and and flourish within. Right. And then, then there's the ethical content of religious experience, which is, you know, what are what are the fruits? You know, in less in less academic language, he in the varieties he talks about what are the fruits of mm-hmm. conversion? That that's the ethical test. Right. Yeah. If I mean, like, you know, if if believing in let's say Jesus Christ means that uh, I act in a way that uh, implies. Or rather, I believe things that imply that I act in a certain way toward others. I, I act to love other people, you know, in the, in the hopes or in the belief that if I act in a loving way toward other people, that has an effect on my social environment that is beneficial to the entire community and ultimately, uh, you know, my, both my value as a person to my community and my own um, sense of well-being is is enhanced. Mm-hmm. You know, it, that is not satisfying to people who are interested in different types of much more theological questions. But that was the sort of pragmatic analysis that James applied to religion. Right. And the one that was that was publicly, that was more available to public, um, to evaluation in the public sphere. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, he thought you know, look, why Why should we deny people um, on really grounds that are, that are shaky at best this belief um, in something that when boiled down to its, its pragmatic essentials uh, is useful to them and useful to, to other people. Now then there's the whole question of, you know, <laughs> those beliefs... You know, being acted upon in ways that are not often useful to other people, and James would not deny that um, there are a lot of people who, who think they're they're acting in religiously motivated ways, and and their actions contradict um, what they claim their beliefs uh, would imply. But um, but that is not to confuse religion itself with um, uh, with a sort of selfish escapism or or anything of the sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in 
chapter three, you kind of make the move it really into the public sphere in the chapter entitled The Ethical Republic. And this is this is something that had just um, frustrated me about my reading of James, like where does this fit in the social and political world? Um, and I, I just really admired the way that you worked with your sources on that in connecting a chronological reading of James and seeing how he developed sort of within his own pluralistic and unfinished life, you know, it was always an ongoing project for him, um, and then connecting that with the people who are around him. So what, what was it like to work on that project and really do that very meticulous work of connecting James's intellectual chronology with the people that, um, that with whom he corresponded and, and had friendships? Right. Well, that was, I mean, as a, as a historian, that was really fun. I mean that that's the that's where I'm spent most of my time in the in the archives and the James papers. Um you know, I had uh particular readings of James's published works uh that I thought very well substantiated my um my interpretation of James's thought. But Obviously, those published works are, have been available to many people for a long, long time, and uh, I thought that my emphasis on his fundamentally uh, ethical uh, and uh, deliberative uh, uh, approach to to life itself um, was different from from many of the accounts out there, uh, and so I thought, well, let's see what James is saying elsewhere. Let's see what James is saying to his students. Let's see what James is uh, writing in his uh, notebooks. Um, let's see uh, you know, who James is reading. Um, let's see what he's saying about their claims. Let's see how he's responding privately to uh, some of the interpretations of his work, even, even while he's still still alive. Um, and let's see what kinds of concerns at a very early age and all the way through are really motivating him to pursue the work that he's pursuing. Uh, because I think if we can figure out what his ultimate concerns seem to be, it's going to help us judge between those various interpretations of of his work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If his concern is that, uh, you know, there is, we live in a world in which there is evil and there are things we can't control. Uh, and yet, you know, we, we, we need to live. We feel as if we're making decisions and we need a, you know, a basis upon which uh, to make that life and that experience meaningful to us. Well, then it hardly makes sense that James is arguing that um, we should just sort of uh, believe whatever we want to believe or that we can, um, uh, you know, wish away uh, things that are unpalatable to us. Um, and, you know, so I thought it was very important to kind of get in his, his head and put his work in the context not only of the whole corpus of his writings, but in the context of his uh, both evolving but very consistent concerns throughout his life. Yeah. And this is, this is occurring at a time, too, when the United States is really grappling, grappling in an agonizing way over what a republic is mm -hmm. and, and what, what this nation is going to be. And this is bef just before, just after the Civil War, it's in the lead-up to the Great War. There's just, it's a huge, well, I mean, all times are times of transition, but it, it was an urgent question. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it reiterated for James that, um, you know, life is, life is uncertain, and we are fallible people, and we need to be not just bold in our thinking, um, and sort of masters of our environment if we can, but we need to be epistemically very humble uh, because, you know, the Civil War has 
shown us that, um, you know, our, our belief in kind of the sort of automatic uh, progress, uh, both moral and, and material of, and political of the, of the nation is, is maybe not so well-founded. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and our, you know, the strains, social uh, and otherwise, of industrialization and, and a new form of industrial capitalism uh, are, uh, are indicating that um, certain uh, attitudes toward our social relations that may in fact have been very um, appropriate at one time are no longer appropriate for uh, achieving ends that at least ostensibly people still agree upon, uh, you know, the end of a society in which um, everyone is given maximum opportunity to to develop one's potential and contribute to, you know, the broader process of social inquiry that um, that leads to prosperity or that leads to um, achievements in, in arts and sciences and culture. Um, so I think he very much was responding all the time to to what's, what's going on in the world around him and in his own personal life. Uh, not in a knee-jerk way. Uh, I mean, his thinking was was more consistent than that. He wasn't just changing his ideas about the nature of the universe, you know, with every headline, but he was a very reflective person. Um, and that included that it was a type of reflection that was not... Um, as inward as that as that word can sometimes connote, but um, but was very uh, externally oriented. Yeah, and I think that that's that's really a strength of your work, um, especially for in my, in my own background, reading in through the lens of his work on the psychology of religion. Like I said earlier, I think one of my frustrations has been where is the connection with public life here. Um, because in seminary, we certainly deal with the um, permeability of the the supposed edge between interior experience and our life in the world. Um, this kind of leads into Chapter 4, where you really kind of... Um, Make, well, you start off by saying that, that, you know, the reason that James isn't seen as a political philosopher is that he wasn't, and just kind of acknowledging that. But then you also really make a good case for how pragmatism, that specific uh, work of, of James, ends up evaluating war as a philosophical issue. Yeah, I mean, I think actually what I what I said was that he, he's not generally considered a political theorist because uh, he was not one, but he is in, in fact sort of a political philosopher, okay. which is to say he doesn't, and, you know, James never came up with, um, he was not concerned to describe in detail the uh, ways in which uh, polities are structured or develop or these sort of laws of their um, uh, evolution and function uh, or or to um, or to predict uh, the ways in which certain uh, social and political structures will interact and 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 what the outcomes were but he was you know he was deeply interested in you know how how do we understand as individuals and as a society uh, our our common goals and how do we find ways to uh, to create the best approximation of our ideal social relations that we can uh, and and I think that he really believed more than most people have noticed that that our institutions uh, and and our formal political institutions, as well as informal political and social institutions, were were crucial to that. It wasn't just you know everybody um, practicing their own uh, virtues privately uh, or kind of reforming themselves personally. It was a 
social problem, uh, a social goal, um, and an ongoing social process. Um, as for war, I mean, you know, he he really most directly uh, addresses that in you know his famous essay, a moral equivalent of war. And um, I mean, I think the short answer is that with war, like everything else he encountered in the world, he he accepted war as a fact. Um, but objected to the elevation of that fact into an absolute evil or an absolute good uh, or a law of human nature to which, you know, we must, you know, rather kind of flaccidly submit, um, you know, really contrary to the characters of pragmatism that, that are still sometimes still prevail in some circles, but, but really became dominant in the 1930s. James never argued that we, as I was saying earlier, that we can will away unpleasantness, um, but he also didn't confuse is with ought. Uh, you know, the fact that war was didn't mean that it, it needed to be. Uh, he, he, he was not someone who urged us simply to, to manage um, rather than attempt to alter those aspects of our environment that, that frustrate us or, or, or pervert human flourishing. Um, you know, the, I guess the longer answer to James's pragmatist analysis of war is that uh, he traced war to certain general characteristics of human psychology and social psychology. Mm. Uh, he examined war's value. I think he tried to be objective in examining war's value in terms of the ultimate ethical ends that it arose to serve and toward which it now tends to be directed, at least ostensibly. And he found it wanting in most cases, um, both because it doesn't serve the the ends it purports to serve very well and because it destroys other more widely and deeply valued ends in the process. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I, I think he would say that's in, in most cases. I don't think he, he would say that there is never a time in which war is appropriate because, I, you know, it's, well, because that's, that's not really the way James talks. <laughs> mm. Mm. I think it's you know the, the thing that the thing that is 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 maybe most interesting to me about James and war is the way that it it really demonstrates his ability to hold what seem to be uh, conflicting ideas kind of in suspension with one another because he relates things and thinks of things functionally and historically rather than in in sort of absolute and static terms. So James believed that each of us is this willful human being pursuing interests that are to some degree idiosyncratic. Um, uh, you know, I, one could argue, let's say, that a love of poetry was somehow evolved to serve a biological end, although James, I think, would dispute that. But, uh, you know, it's hard to argue that my list of the 100 best poems in the English language and your list of the same could be described in, you know, terms of some sort of species level adaptation or something. I mean, my, my top five would all be songs from like Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run album. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure yours would, would maybe differ. Maybe not too um, much, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point being that we're all evolved to be willful beings, mm -hmm. each with disparate ends in view, because the world is unfinished and there's no set pattern into which all its particulars must fall and our freedom, you know, our ability not only to adapt to our environment but to, to alter our environments depends on the chance for that true novelty in the world and that means a chance for conflict as well. You know, at the same time, however, we're social animals uh, and along with this kind of pugnacious, uh, which was James's, favorite term, willfulness, we also exhibit a deep interest in social recognition for our value to, to our groups. Um, and war is a great example of how a lot of the social institutions that emerge from our, our both our selfish and our selfless efforts to be useful to others can persist into new contexts into which they're not really well adapted. Um, you know, war heroes cover themselves with glory. Uh, by sacrificing, uh, or or at least risking themselves for the good of the group, um, or at least that's how war is often interpreted. Um, 
But in an increasingly interconnected world, James argued, that kind of archaic idea about war, or rather the archaic ideas about the groups that we serve and which serve us, and about the ways in which our interests and those of others in and out of our groups relate to one another, actually tend to encourage actions that are destructive for everyone Mm -hmm. rather than for one particular side. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think most would agree with James that even today war does, you know, kind of call for supreme physical, mental, and and collaborative efforts that accomplish uh, results that are really practically incredible, even if they're pragmatically undesirable. Hmm. Um, And so James was was interested in thinking about how can we accept that war war is a fact, but it is not a law of nature. Uh, the roots of war are facts, but the way in which um, we cultivate those roots uh, is not predetermined uh, to result in war. Uh, you know, how can we find ways to direct the psychological and social resources upon which war draws uh, to such effect, uh, and and direct them toward constructive ends. Yeah. And he has an idea for that, which, uh, you know, is interesting to some and doesn't satisfy others, but, um, you know, his moral equivalent of war, which is kind of a civilian, a civilian, uh, a civilian core, um, universal service in this kind of civilian core. And, right. Uh, environmentalists worry that it's just a campaign against nature and but you know his point was not to you know set everyone to uh, you know turning pristine wilderness into oil fields or something like that his point was to argue that good and evil are often mixed and we have to be very careful and extremely creative and extremely flexible in determining communally what is the good and how to pursue the good Hmm. rather than the evil I guess I had wondered in one thirty in the, that chapter, and I'm looking at page one thirty seven towards the bottom, um, about the what you call the de- the deliberative process in a democracy. Um, through such daily acts, the deliberative citizens of healthy democracies can reduce conflict and realize the ethical republic. Such nations, James wrote, have no need of wars to save them. So that kind of made me wonder whether war was a held up as sort of the um, uh, sort of, war is kind of the parable of what happens when we fail as citizens to account for the one and the many. But yeah, I think you're I, saying something different now. Well, I'm something I think different. I'm, I think I'm. I think I would agree with both. I mean, I think war is, you know, I think James would say war is uh, a sign of the world's imperfection and our imperfections. Um, But there are times at which there are, you know, war is the result of a failure to resolve conflict, I mean, mm-hmm. by definition. Um, and it's it's a result of a failure to find a zone in which conflicting interests can either coexist or can be discarded for uh, newer interests that are are shared and that somehow serve uh, the ends that the, the older... Or, or 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 more compelling ends that the older interests um, uh, represented, um, but James would say that that there's no guarantee that 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 can always occur, right. um, and there's no guarantee that even if one group uh, or the majority of the people involved in a conflict of interests feel that war is a completely crazy way to solve it, there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to convince mm-hmm. the other side. <laughs> and so in that sense, it doesn't make sense to condemn 
this abstraction of war, you know, divorce from any context as, as a sort of absolute evil. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times in which it, it in order to preserve uh, the deliberative process that has failed, but that, but that could, it, it is still better than, than endless war in order to preserve or, and then have a chance to improve um, that process. Uh, you know, per, perhaps other things need to be resisted. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, James, James did see war as a terrible failing of human, uh, of human ethics uh, and a terrible uh, waste of, of human lives and, and resources. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's the... It, it, it didn't translate into strict pacifism for him right, because you always not. had to weigh the consequences of that right. of that decision as well. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, you know, William James died in 1910, um, so he did not live to see the Great War. But in the last chapter, you tether William James um, sort of at one end and, and Woodrow Wilson at the other and in between is just um, a network of this sort of mesh of public intellectuals that I – some of them I knew had something to do with James, but others I, I didn't realize. So like Jane Addams, um, W.B. Du Bois, uh, Louis Brandeis, um, Walter Lippmann, of course John Dewey. Um, that That was really – that connection that you made, the, the, the sort of dispersal of James's ideas into people who did have a more direct influence on public policy, that was really fascinating. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so tell I, uh, us about some of the characters that you that you, they're in the book and, and what they have to do with James. Yeah, and um, with Woodrow Wilson. Right, right. Well, I'm not going to give too much away because that's that's my. My upcoming project. Oh, okay, okay. Which is, is, I have a, I, I shouldn't necessarily record myself admitting this, but I have a manuscript delivery date uh, coming up this year. So, so soon I will explain those connections in, in exhaustive and hopefully not exhausting detail. But, okay. um, you know, one of the things that always fascinated me about James was his ability to, and, and you know, it, it's it's partly uh, it's one of the reasons why philosophers so often uh, misunderstand him as well as correctly you know chide him for for being somewhat careless in some of his phrasing and things like that but he had this amazing ability to to inspire non-philosophers mm-hmm. um, you know and to inspire people to see philosophy as as life, as just a higher, a more reflective way to live life and to act in the world, uh, rather than as just a, an effort to, you know, kind of diagram the universe. Um, and uh, so that's one of the things that originally attracted me to James, and, and, and kind of, I guess, naturally, then the people he influenced become very interesting. And, um, you know, some, you have someone like Jane Addams, for instance, who was, who was, you know, also exerted an emphasis on James's uh, thinking and was, and, and whom James deeply admired, um, but admired in large part because of her extraordinarily sort of practical implementation of ideas that, that they shared um, in the settlement house movement, particularly, uh, you know, a lot of her, her other activities, he he didn't live to see. Um, uh, you know, Du Bois uh, used, uh, you know, kind of fused James's uh, pragmatist analysis of the sort of historicity and contingency of, of our social institutions and our, our very ideas, our very kind of categories of thinking uh, to criticize race and racism 
while at the same time looking for the ways in which uh, the experience of racialized groups, uh, the, the strategies that have been developed to to navigate life under those circumstances were, were still truly valuable and, and, and how their strategies, uh, cultural, intellectual, political, social, and the strategies even of the dominating uh, class might, um, or group, might actually be very complementary if, if we could find ways to, to overcome the problematic barriers that those ways of thinking had erected and, and frankly still still present. Um, so it was just wonderful to see there there were just so many examples of James's ideas being kind of put to the test the same way that uh, you know frankly if, if anybody's ideas need to be put to the test it, it, you know in order for us to put any stock in them they should be James's right because that's his whole theory of right, right. His, his whole uh, conception of of thinking and ideas so that was fascinating just in and of itself and and what I found in in tracing James's influence and kind of uh, uh, surveying the extent of his long shadow was was that of all people that I ever expected to sort of find speaking at times in really oddly Jamesian terms, um, Woodrow Wilson was one of them, <laughs> and uh, who, you know, my colleagues in the historical profession, I, you know, there will be many who will never, ever uh, be willing to accept that Woodrow Wilson was anything but a, a rigid moralist, uh, a naive idealist, a cynical imperialist or all three. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was intrigued because that's how I had been, you know, I guess uh, raised uh, by my academic upbringing to view Wilson. And, and yet it, 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 there were just words and then increasingly decisions. And, uh, you know, and then as I explored further uh, private correspondence and, and explanations and, Musings and and struggles um, in Wilson's thinking that that just didn't match with any of those uh, types of Wilson that have been kind of passed down through the historical literature, and so I thought, well, gosh, some of what he's saying really sounds like pragmatism to me, and I'm going to look for those connections, and so that's that's what I did, and I found that some of these extraordinarily uh, active um, people that James had influenced didn't, you know, just stop uh, being active uh, at some weird border where politics shades into policy making, um, but that they sought to to be uh, ethical Republicans uh, in those avenues as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you want me to go into <laughs> the exact ways they did that. Uh, it's a well, you're long, welcome long to. Story, but, well, you know, I, I, what I found was that really to my surprise um, and, and throughout Wilson's career, uh, there were he did have encounters uh, with uh, pragmatist ideas and often very personal, direct encounters with pragmatist um, public intellectuals and and really activists um, that I believe shaped his decision making at crucial points um, during his presidency and you know what what they did not do is determine that uh, Wilson's entire presidency would be this you know pristinely uh, you know pragmatist you know this crystal of pragmatist <laughs> political right. ethics that was that was perfectly constructed and 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 uh, foreseen from the beginning and and executed uh, to every uh, uh, specific of its design. Um, it, it was not that way at all. But I think what it what these people did do in their interactions with Wilson was at various points encourage. Um, 
well, and at various points fail to encourage, but, but, but at other significant points encourage the, well, what I personally would consider the best features of his thinking about human relations and political institutions um, and really push him to push others uh, to imagine uh, a United States as well as a, a you know a, a community of nations globally that uh, interacted in a much more uh, deliberative and in that sense rational way mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I think he did make supreme efforts to try to bring that about now those efforts were uh, you know in in some sense hampered by his own biases, uh, racism, um, uh, prime among them, uh, and they were hampered by, you know, other events and external forces that in, in some cases he, he was able to master and in many cases he wasn't. But, um, but I think we need to understand that aspect of, of his role and thus the really the US role in in the period during the Great War and and the peacemaking in order to to draw the right lessons mm-hmm. from it. Okay. Okay. Well that kind of leads us into uh the question that we like to ask um here at New Books Network. Um, We've taken up a good bit of your time, but can you tell us what you're working on now? You've sort of alluded to it, but uh, what should we look for in in the future from you? Well, you should look for those last, I don't know, seven paragraphs, I guess, (laughs) (laughs) that I just burdened you with. Um, I'm working on a book right now called uh, Power Without Victory, Woodrow Wilson and the American Internationalist Experiment. Uh, And that'll be coming out from the University of Chicago Press in 2016, we hope. Um, those hopes depend upon me. <laughs> uh, it's actually a, a revision of um, a project, uh, you know, that became my dissertation, and and from which this James book um, emerged. Um, and uh, you know, I I have been bothered for a long time by the what I feel are the sort of easy conclusions that people draw from uh, the end of World War One and uh, the record of the, the peace negotiations of Paris and the record of the League of Nations afterward. Um, and, you know, I guess without giving away too much, I'll just say that uh, I think a better understanding of Wilson's role and the role of American internationalists more generally and the role of U.S. public opinion in that process um, kind of undermines some of those easy assumptions. It, it, it forces us to ask ourselves, you know, whether it really is true that the League just couldn't possibly have worked um, whether it really is true that, you know, well, even if it would have worked if the United States had joined, the United States would never have joined. Or is it really true that even if the United States had joined, it would have pretty much just acted the way it did, even though it didn't join? Because, mm-hmm. you know, Americans aren't going to want their politics, you know, decided by some group of people of in all places, Geneva, you know. Um, you know, I just, I don't think there's really nearly as much evidence for any of those assumptions as has been assumed, I think there are very clear uh, uh, reasons uh, that have to do with events in the 20s and 30s and that have to do, frankly, with changes in the historiography of World War I um, in the late 20s, 30s, uh, and later uh, that explain those assumptions better than the actual um, evidence from the time. And I think there's a lot of evidence for some contrary interpretations. So that's my my hope, is that I will at least make the case that we we should consider alternatives. Wow, that sounds like a, a fascinating contribution. We'll look forward to that. Okay. Um, well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, I definitely enjoyed talking with you. 
Sure, it was my pleasure. I, I really had a great time. Thank you. Thank you.